Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, 2 Corinthians, Strength and Weakness. Good morning, everyone. Please open in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. That's where we'll be continuing in our study this week. We've been studying through the book of 2 Corinthians here on Sunday mornings in a series called Strength in Weakness. And today we find ourselves picking up in chapter 10, starting in verse 7. So as you open there in your Bibles and Bible apps, let's bow our heads and pray as we get into God's Word. Lord, we come to you now with a sense of expectancy, expecting and knowing that your word has something for us to hear, for us to learn, and for us to put into practice in our lives. And so we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would help us to have attentive minds and receptive hearts, and that we would understand and receive everything that your word has for us this morning in this passage. So Lord, we avail ourselves to you. We ask for your will to be done in our lives during this time, and for it not to just stay here, Lord, but help us to put these things into practice and so we can see our lives transformed by the power of your spirit through your word. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's interesting the kinds of things you remember uh, from growing up, right? The kind of memories that stick with you. For example, I have this one memory uh, from when I was little. I was probably like five, six years old. Uh, So I drew a picture, did some kind of art project, and then I took it to one of my like older relatives and I asked them like, you know, what do you think? Did I do a good job? Do you like it? And uh, this person looked at it and said, no. You know, they, they said, no, it's, it's not very good. And they were probably right. I mean, the fact is that um, it's funny, though, because I'm sure there were countless other times when I did something like that, and, and I was told that what I did was good. I was praised for it. And yet this one time when I was told that I didn't do a good job, right, that, it, that I wasn't that this person didn't like what I did, it stuck with me. Like, it's interesting, right, that I don't remember all the other times when they told me I did a good job, but I've never forgotten this one time when I was told that I didn't do a good job. See, what I was looking for was for that person to give me approval. And the desire for approval is really one of our most basic human desires. People go to great lengths to earn the approval of others. It drives so many of our actions. You know, approval is more than just tolerating something. It's not just putting up with something. And it's actually even more than acceptance, right? Approval is more than acceptance. Approval is when you look at something and you say, it is good. It is right. You know, so much of social media is people seeking approval from other people. They're posting things in a sense of saying, look what I did. Is it good? Do you like it? And we seek approval through our accomplishments. We, we do it through our appearance. But if we're not careful, we can become slaves to other people's approval or for the need to, for other people's approval. We, we can begin to do things not because we want to do them necessarily or because we believe that they're the right thing to do, But then we just start doing them as slaves for other people's approval because we desperately feel this need for earning their approval. You see, when we come to the Bible, though, what we find is that the Bible challenges us to ask some very important questions. Questions like, whose approval are you seeking and how are you going about seeking that approval? Because not all approval is equal in value. And there are ways of seeking approval that are actually dangerous and detrimental. 
Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul the Apostle is going to show us how rather than being slaves to the approval of others, if we seek God's approval first, it will lead us down a good path in our lives. And God's approval is ultimately the only kind of approval which can truly satisfy the deepest longings in our soul. So the title of today's message is Approved by God. Approved by God. And here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 7 through 18, what we're going to see is that the approval that our hearts desire is found through Jesus and what he accomplished for us. That'll be our outline for studying this passage. It's our summary statement. I'd love it if you'd take that truth with you as you go. Take a picture of it. Write it down. And we'll repeat that throughout our message today because that's a summary of this passage and also the outline for studying these verses. So the approval our hearts desire is found through Jesus and what he accomplished for us. Let's look at the first part of that. The approval our hearts desire. We pick up in chapter 10, verse 7, here in 2 Corinthians, where Paul says, Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. Now, in Corinth at this time, there was a bit of a power struggle going on in the church there between some members of the Corinthian church and Paul the Apostle. Paul had come to the city on his second missionary journey. He had started started this church after sharing the gospel. People responded to the gospel, put their faith in Jesus, and Paul remained there for some time. After starting the church, he became their pastor. He taught them from the scriptures. But eventually, Paul moved on. He left Corinth. But even after he left, he still stayed involved in the life of the church through a series of letters and through a series of personal visits. But over time, what happened is there developed a group of people within the church there in Corinth who resented Paul's ongoing involvement in the life of their church. They resented the fact that Paul thought that he could just show up whenever he felt like it and tell them what they were doing wrong or what they needed to change. And this group started saying things like, who does Paul think he is? always coming around here, telling us what to do, writing us letters, telling us what we need to repent of and change. That guy needs to mind his own business. What gives him the right or the authority to tell us that what we're doing is wrong or that we need to change things? Instead, these people asserted that they were perfectly capable of leading the church themselves. In fact, they said, not only are we just as capable as Paul, we might be even more capable, better than than he could ever be. So here in this letter, Paul is addressing some of the accusations that these people were making against him as they attacked his character and as they kind of tried to drag him down. Here in chapter 10, Paul is identifying some of the root causes that were at the root of this power struggle there in Corinth. What was really motivating people to say the kinds of things about him that they were saying. Now in our study last week, we looked at the first six verses of chapter 10. And in those verses, Paul talked about how one of the things that was at the root of this power struggle, root of this conflict, was spiritual warfare. We talked about that last in our last study. But now in verses 7 through 18 here in chapter 10, Paul's going to talk about how another thing that's at the root of this conflict is the desire for approval from other people. The desire for approval from other people. So as we study these verses, they should challenge us to ask ourselves, first of all, whose approval are you seeking? And how are you going about seeking that approval? 
In his letter to the Galatians, Paul wrote this. He said, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see, all of us have a desire for, perhaps even a need, for approval. The question is, whose approval are you seeking? What Paul is pointing out in his letter to the Galatians in this verse is that you need to make a choice. You need to make a choice between whose approval is most important to you. Because sometimes, if you're seeking God's approval, it might require you to do things that aren't very popular with other people. On the other hand, if you're primarily seeking the approval of other people, it can easily lead you down a path which isn't pleasing to God. This faction in the Corinthian church, they were seeking to have their need for approval met by seeking the approval of other people. And in doing so, they found themselves no longer walking in the way of Jesus. So in these verses that we're looking at today, we're going to see three ways in which these people were seeking approval from others. So three ways they were seeking approval from others by outward means. The first was through appearance. We'll see that in the first couple of verses that we're going to look at. Then they were also doing it through comparison. And thirdly, they were doing it through boasting. So we're going to go through each of these as we look at this first part. Paul begins this section again here in verse 7. Let's look at it one more time by addressing some of the claims that are being made against him. He says at the beginning of the verse, look at what is before your eyes. That's an interesting phrase. It's a little bit hard to translate. And that's why if you look at different translations of the Bible, you'll notice it's translated in different ways. Um, what it means in Greek, like literally it just means you look at what is before your eyes. But what that phrase means is that someone is only looking at the physical situation. They're only looking at what they can see with their eyes. So other translations kind of bring out the meaning even better. For example, the NIV translation translates it like this. You are judging by appearances. Uh, the New King James puts it like this. Do you look at things according to outward appearance? So these people who are attacking and criticizing Paul, their critiques were based only on outward appearances rather than looking at Paul's heart or considering the content of what he was saying to them. They were merely criticizing the way that he looked and the way that he talked, these kind of outward things. Now, we don't have any photographs of the Apostle Paul to show us what he looked like, and we don't even have any really reliable paintings of what he looked like. But what we do have is some fairly reliable church traditions which do describe what Paul looked like physically. One early Christian tradition from around 200 AD, it says that Paul was a man of small stature. In other words, he was short, and it tells us he was about three cubits, roughly five feet tall. So he's a short man. It says that he had a stout body and crooked legs. He had a bald head and a gray beard, and he had eyebrows that met in the middle of his forehead, right? He was Mr. Unibrow. He also had a, a nose that was hooked. So in other words, he, he didn't have like magnetic good looks. He wouldn't really make it today as like a televangelist. But if you look down at verse 10, you can see some, of the, some more things that they, they criticized about Paul's appearance and the way that he looked outwardly. It says in verse 10, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Apparently, Paul didn't have a commanding presence. Instead, he was weak and unimpressive. Uh, when they say that Paul's speech was of no account, 
What that means is that these people were criticizing Paul for not being a very compelling speaker, right? Not being a good preacher. They say, sure, he's good at writing letters, but if you ever hear him speak in person, wow, what a snooze fest. I mean, this guy's boring. He doesn't have oratory skills, right? The kind of skills that were so prized in the Greek culture of that day. So they criticized Paul by saying that he wasn't a very dynamic preacher. And we can assume then that if these are the criticisms that they were making against Paul, the reason they were making these things or bringing these things up was because they thought they could win people over by being those things which they said that Paul was not. So in other words, they're saying Paul is weak and impressive. The converse of that, they're, they're essentially saying, but we are, you know, commanding. We are real leaders. We are, Paul's a bad preacher, but we're good preachers, right? We're dynamic. And Paul's saying, that's just style stuff, man. That's just outward appearance. You're just judging by appearances. You know, a very similar thing happened in the history of the nation of Israel. Israel had wanted a king. They had said to God, we want to have a king just like all the other nations do. You know, kind of like kids at Christmas. All the other kids have one. You know, in my class, I want to have one too. And so that's what Israel said. All the other nations have a king. We want a king too. And the kind of king they wanted was someone who looked like a king. They wanted to have the appearance of a king. And so the very first king they got was a man named Saul. So that he was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was tall. He was handsome. He looked the part of a king. The only problem is he didn't have the heart of a king. He didn't have a heart after God's own heart. And ultimately, God rejected Saul as being king over Israel. And instead, God chose a man who was short and freckled. He was ruddy in appearance, which means that he had red hair and freckles. He was someone who everyone else had overlooked because he didn't look like a king. But although people look at the outward things, we're told there in 1 Samuel, God looks at the heart. And God knew that this young man named David had a heart after his own heart. And God placed his stamp of approval on David rather than Saul. You see, these people in Corinth were focused on outward appearances rather than inward substance. And I got to tell you, that's a trap that's really easy to fall into. I was thinking during the pandemic, we all started moving online, right, with our meetings and having meetings on, on, you know, video chats and all these kinds of things. And one of the things we quickly learned doing all these video meetings was, you don't actually have to clean your whole house, right? You just have to clean the part of the house that's in the background of your video, so you just kind of push things off to the side, and your house is totally a mess, but nobody knows because they can only see that one little part that's in the background of video. Like, you don't have to, like, get fully dressed. You just have to get dressed in the part that shows in the video. Uh, but if you, uh, you know, there's a temptation in there for that attitude to bleed into other areas of our lives as well, right? Like, you don't have to really be kind to your spouse. You just have to be kind to her when other people are watching. Like, you don't have to really actually be spiritual. You just have to know how to appear spiritual when other people are watching you, right? And it's a real temptation for us because we do care so much about what people think. We want people's approval, but doing things only for the sake of appearances or worrying only about appearance rather than substance, that's a real trap. And you know what will happen? 
it will eventually catch up to you. It will leave you divided. It will leave you empty. And again, it will catch up to you eventually. You see, when we start, though, pursuing God's approval rather than just the approval of other people, you know what happens? It makes you a lot less concerned about appearances, but a lot more concerned about substance because you realize that your heavenly Father sees what is done in secret. That's what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember that? He gave a list of three spiritual practices, praying, fasting, and giving. And Jesus said, don't pray, don't, don't fast, don't give just to be seen by other people. Don't do it in a way so as to be seen by others so that they'll applaud you or pat you on the back. He said, if you do that and they applaud you, if they pat you on the back, that was your reward right there. But, he says, instead... You know what you should do? When you pray, go into your inner closet and pray in there, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you give, give in secret. So your right hand doesn't even know what your left hand's doing, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you, right? When you fast, don't do it to be applauded. Do it unto the Lord. He who sees in secret will reward you. That's what it means to have integrity. Integrity means that you don't just do things for the sake of appearance, but you really are who you appear to be outwardly. It means that you're the same person all the time. You're not a different person at home than you are at work or at church or at school. You do the same things whether everybody's watching or whether nobody's watching. You know, earlier in this letter, Paul described himself and his, his colleagues in the gospel. He described themselves as men of sincerity. Men of sincerity. It's an interesting phrase. That word sincere actually comes from Latin, and in Latin it comes from the phrase sina sera, sina sera, which means without wax. It's an interesting phrase. And the reason where, where this phrase comes from, it comes from in the, in the Roman world in ancient times. You know, there were a lot of shopkeepers, and they sold goods and items which were made of clay and made of stone. And what would happen is, you know, over time, things bump into each other. They get cracked. Perhaps they break. You know, they get nicks in them. And so what shopkeepers would do is, let's say, you know, you've had a vase or something, and it got cracked and broken. Well, they, we nowadays, we kind of super glue things back together. But before they had super glue, what they would use is they would use wax. Or let's say you got something that got a big crack in it. Well, you'd fill that crack in with wax, and then you could paint over it, and no one could see that there had ever been a problem there. And so what people would do is, you know, they'd use wax to glue things back together or to fill in cracks. But then you know what would happen. Let's say you bought a vase that had been glued back together with wax. Well, as soon as you start down the road, you know, the bumps in the road, the wax wouldn't be, able, wouldn't be strong enough to hold up. And so that thing would collapse on the way home. Or let's say you got it home and it was full of wax. Well, when you start a fire in the winter to keep your, your home warm, that fire would cause that wax to heat up and it would reveal the cracks or perhaps even cause that thing to collapse. You see, it didn't have the structural integrity anymore because it was full of wax. And so what shopkeepers would do to say, hey, hey, this is not one of those products that's been glued back together, they would write this phrase on these signs. And it would say, sina sera, right? Sincerity. It's without wax. And that's where we get our idea of integrity, right? It means that, that you really are what you appear to be. You're not full of wax. 
And so this is what Paul is saying here. At the root of the problem in the faction in Corinth is that their focus is only on outward things, right? Winning people's approval through outward appearances. He says at the end of verse 7, if anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. These people were claiming that they were Christ's chosen leaders. And Paul is saying, well, look, you guys may be very confident that Christ has chosen you to be leaders, but guess what? So am I. I am also very confident that Christ has called me to be a leader over this congregation as well. And that's why he says in verse 8, For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. Paul's saying, look, I'm not going to back down on this, guys. I know that God has given me a measure of authority as an apostle, and that authority is for building you up, not for tearing you down. Which, by the way, such an important principle about authority and leadership. It's for the purpose, not of tearing down or of serving yourself, but of building up and serving others. So friends, let me just encourage you. If God has given you any authority in your life, whether that's in your workplace or in your home, whether it's in, even in public office, remember that that authority is given by God not to tear down or to serve yourself, but to build up and to serve others. So Paul goes on to say in verse 9, I do not want to appear to be frightening to you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily appearance is weak and his speech of no account Verse 11, so let, us, so let such a person understand that what we say by letter, when absent, we will do when present. Paul is being a little bit stern here with these people. They've been accusing him of being two-faced, of being a coward. They said that he was bold in his letters, but weak and timid in person. And Paul's saying, fine, you know what? I would rather be gentle and friendly when I'm there with you in person. But if you need me to be assertive when I show up, listen, I'm not afraid to do that. I'll do it if it's necessary. This faction in Corinth, right, they were seeking approval of others through, we've looked at appearances, but here's the second way they were seeking approval through outward means, through comparison. That's what we see in verse 12 where it says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. So another trap that we can fall into when we're seeking the approval of other people is the trap of comparison, comparing ourselves with others. And as Paul says here, it's a very unwise thing to do. You know why? Because it will always lead to one of two things. It, either it will puff you up with pride or it will pull you down into the dirt. You know why? Because it just doesn't, it's not a good way to compare things, if they're good or bad or how you're doing. Here's why. Because you will always be able to find somebody who is worse than you. If you want to look down on somebody and build your identity by saying, well, I'm not as bad as that guy, there's always somebody that you can find like that. But you know what else? The opposite is always true. There's always somebody who's ahead of you, who's succeeding and doing well in areas where you are not. And you, there's always somebody you can hold up and say, well, look, I'm not doing as well as that guy. I guess I'm a huge failure. You see, it's completely subjective. You'll always find what you're looking for. You can find somebody on either side. It's not a good idea to, to measure yourself through comparison. See, it doesn't lead to, to or produce anything good in your life. But you know what? If you instead 
build your identity by seeking what God's desire is for you, that's incredibly grounding. It's incredibly, you know, it fixes you in place. Listen, if you try to build your identity or earn other people's approval by comparing yourself to others, another temptation that happens is the temptation to tear other people down in order to make yourself feel better or look better. That's what these guys in Corinth were doing. They were tearing down Paul in order to make themselves look better in order to gain other people's approval. Again, that's why when you focus instead on seeking God's approval rather than just the approval of other people or comparing yourself with others, it's grounding. It's stabilizing. Because when God looks at you, he doesn't compare you to how well other people are doing. He's concerned with who he has called you to be and if you're living out the calling he's placed on your life. It reminds me of the final chapter of the Gospel of John. Jesus meets with his disciples after his resurrection on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. They're out fishing. Jesus is waiting for them on the shore when they come in. You remember Peter? He had denied Jesus three times on the night when Jesus was crucified. And so Jesus speaks to Peter there on the shores of Galilee, and he restores him back to a position of service to Jesus, right? Back to right standing as an apostle. He asks him three times, do you love me? He denied him three times. Jesus gives him the chance to be restored. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter says, I do. And Jesus tells Peter, you're going to be restored. You're going to go on. You're going to do great things in the kingdom. But he also tells him, at at some point in the future, your faith is going to be tested one more time. And this time, your faith will not fail. You will end up giving your life as a martyr for my cause, right? For the cause of the gospel because of your faith in Jesus. And Peter says, okay. And Jesus says, follow me in this, Peter. And Peter says, okay. But then a few minutes later, it says that Peter turned around and he saw John, right? John, one of Jesus' other disciples. And Peter asked Jesus, well, uh, hey, wait a second. What about that guy? Is he going to die as a martyr too? And Jesus says, Peter, who cares? that's, That's between me and John. That's not between you. What is it to you if even I want him to stay around until I come back? I'll all worry about what I do with him. You walk the path that I've placed before you. And he says, Peter, you worry about you. You follow me. I think that many of us fall into that same pattern as Peter. We understand that God has a plan for our lives, and we're good with that until we start looking over there and we see the plan that God has for somebody else's life, and we're like, hey, wait a second. Maybe I want that plan instead. Why does he get to have that plan, and I get to have this plan? His plan looks better than mine. I want to have that plan, not my plan. Right? I realize God has a plan for my life, but, but God's plan for that guy's life sure looks a lot better. Just like Jesus said to Peter, though, he would say the same to you and me. What is it to you if God has a different plan for someone else's life? You follow him in the plan and path that he has set before you. See, seeking approval through comparison, it's foolish and it's unhelpful. But the third way that they were seeking approval through these outward means was by boasting. That's what we see in verses 13 to 16. Let's read that. Paul says, We will not boast beyond limits but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God has assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limits in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged 
so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another area of influence. Notice how in these four verses, verses 13 through 16, Paul keeps using this word over and over, boast, boasting. That's because these people in Corinth uh, who were this faction that was set against Paul, they were seeking the approval of others, but they were trying to get it through boasting. And we've seen that a lot throughout this letter, haven't we? These people in this group, they were going around talking about how great they were and how much better they were than Paul, how they were more spiritual, how they had their lives more together than Paul did, how they were better preachers than Paul. They spoke with greater eloquence. And Paul's saying, you know what? I'm not going to boast beyond the limits of the ministry which God gave me. And that ministry, Paul says, it includes you, you Corinthians, because God called me to be the one to bring the gospel to you. He called me to be the one to found your church. And God called me to be an apostle. And your church falls under my area of purview or my area of oversight. See, the Corinthian people, on the other hand, this faction, they were self-appointed leaders. You should always worry about self-appointed leaders. Who, who made you a leader? Well, I kind of made myself. I like to think of myself as a leader. Paul knew where his authority came from. But these guys were just self-appointed. And when they boasted about themselves, their boasting was unfounded because they were merely building on the foundation that Paul had laid as the founder and original pastor of the church. Boasting about yourself may be a way of gaining other people's approval, but it's not the way to receive God's approval. Instead, this brings us to the final part of our sentence. The approval our hearts desire is found through Jesus and what he accomplished for us. See, as opposed to those who boast about themselves, Paul now quotes from the Old Testament book of the prophet Jeremiah. And he says this in verse 17. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What does that mean, to boast in the Lord? It means that rather than focusing on and talking about your own goodness or, or trusting in your own accomplishments, to boast in the Lord means that now you're focused on and you're talking about God's goodness and you're trusting in his accomplishments. You see, the passage that Paul's quoting here from Jeremiah, it comes from Jeremiah chapter 9, and, and here's what it says. Let me read it to you. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Wisdom strength, riches. These are the kinds of things that people build their identity upon and use to earn the approval of others. But all of them are fleeting. None of them remain. None of them will last. What really matters, the only thing worth really boasting about is whether you understand and know God. But just take a second to think about that. How can anybody really understand God or know God? Like, is that even possible? And if it is possible, then how? The only way we can know God is if God has revealed himself to us. And the good news is, he has. The book of Hebrews, it begins with this wonderful sentence where it says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. See, God revealed himself throughout the ages to people so that we could understand him, so we could know him. He spoke through the prophets. He spoke through the scriptures. But in these last days, he has spoken to us. His greatest revelation of himself is his son, Jesus. And it says this about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature. So when it says there in Jeremiah chapter 9, I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Understand, when Jesus came as the exact imprint of God's nature, he came and he lived, he embodied these things. He put them on display for us through his life and through his actions. He lived them out so that we could see God's steadfast love on display, God's justice portrayed, God's righteousness shown to us to understand it and see it so that through him we could understand and know God. Jesus' very coming to us was an act of God's steadfast love. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Right? God's love is displayed for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God, Jesus' coming to the world was an act of God's steadfast love for us, that in spite of our sins and shortcomings, God loves you. He hasn't given up on you. He wants to spend eternity with you. In Jesus, we see God's justice on display as well. Although Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father, the judgment for your sins was placed upon him. He died in your place, satisfying the need for justice and providing the way for God to show mercy and grace to you and me. And in Jesus, we see God's righteousness given as a gift to you and me who trust in him. So when you put your trust in Jesus as your Savior and surrender to him as your Lord, you're declared righteous in God's sight. Not only are your sins forgiven, but God puts his stamp of approval on you because now your life and all that you are is hidden in Christ. And when, when God looks at you, he sees you in Christ. And he says about you what he said about Jesus. Behold, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why Paul says in verse 18, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. The approval of God is not something you need to earn. It's something you receive. It doesn't come to you on the basis of merit, but on the basis of grace. And the way you receive the approval of God is by putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and surrendering your life to him as your Lord. To put your faith in Jesus simply means that rather than boasting about your own goodness, trusting in your own accomplishments, instead you put your trust in Jesus' goodness and in what he accomplished in order to save you through his life and death and resurrection. And as you do that, not only will you be found in Christ having received God's approval, but you know what else it does? It sets your life on a whole new path no longer driven by seeking the approval of others, but now driven with a desire to live for and please God by walking out that path that he's laid before you, seeking to fulfill the calling that he's put on your life in a way that pleases him. Not so that you can earn his approval, but because you've already received his approval by his grace. 
So I challenge you to live that out this week because the approval our heart's desire is found through Jesus and what he accomplished for us. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.